This podcast is brought to you by Trend. Trend is a micro-influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers. Learn more, join our network, or start an influencer campaign at trend.io. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DTC pod. I'm your host, Jay. And today, I'm joined with Jing, the founder and CEO of Flyby Jing. And we're also joined with Ramon, who is our CEO. Really excited to talk to Jing today about her product, Flyby Jing, which is a brand that kind of brings the deep and complex flavors of China to the world through artisanal food products. And we're going to be talking about how to deal with increased demand and also importing foreign trends and culture. So I'm really excited to jump into this. Jing, I know your product has really been coming off the shelves digitally, and it's going to be exciting to jump into this. But before we do, kind of want to turn it to you if you want to give a little bit of an intro about Fly by Jing and tell us a little bit about yourself before Fly by Jing. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you for having me. So I am the founder of Fly by Jing, and we make all natural, small batch crafted Chinese food products. Um, available mainly direct to consumer on our website. My name is Jing now, but it hasn't always been. So for the last 25 years, actually, I went by Jenny, which was a nickname that I chose at the age of five to make life easier for myself, you know, living in Europe. My family and I moved around a lot growing up. We moved to a different country practically every year. And so for me, I felt the need even at that young age to kind of like bury kind of my heritage just to fit in. So only very recently this year that I reclaimed my birth name. But this reclamation of that was kind of a journey. It started in my 20s. When I graduated college, I went to school in Canada and I ended up in Asia for my job, which used to be in tech. I went there and started kind of trying to reconnect with my roots and my identity. And one of the ways that I was able to do that was through food. So I really dug into this food culture that was so rich and with 5,000 years of history. And I was just stunned that most people outside of China had no idea about it. So, you know, it started with kind of a personal quest to reconnect with my roots, but then that turned into this mission to shine light on this cuisine and the culture so eventually I left my corporate job and I opened a restaurant in Shanghai, as you do. And I just, you know, really delved deep into this cuisine, studied cooking with some of the culinary masters in China. And I tried to like figure out what was my place in it. And, you know, I, I felt like, you know, the terms tradition or authenticity never really sat right with me. You know, it felt kind of terminal, like, you know, it was an assessment that people placed on a culture and its people and doesn't allow it to evolve. And so I was trying to figure out how do I like push the conversation forward about Chinese cuisine? Because in the West, I recognize that there have been centuries of kind of bias and prejudice against the cuisine. And I wanted to change that. So I started with that restaurant, which eventually I sold and I started working on Fly by Jing. Um, and Fly by Jing actually started as a pop-up dining concept. Um, and the name was a reference to this type of restaurant that's really famous in Chengdu, my hometown, called Fly Restaurants, which are these hole-in-the-wall, worn-down kind of restaurants that are so delicious that they are set to attract people like flies. 
and also as an ode to my birth name, which at the time I was still uncomfortable kind of being called, but I wanted to start to reconnect. So that's the start of Fly by Jing. I started cooking these, you know, pop-up dinners in cities all over the world. And wherever I went, I would bring these suitcases of ingredients with me because I knew that what made these flavors magical were the ingredients and these ingredients were not available outside of China. You know, there was a real gap there. There was a lack of, you know, education bridging that gap and the bias on top of that, like I mentioned. So eventually I realized that I wanted to make it easier for people everywhere to access these flavors. And that was the beginning of Flybedging as it is today, a spice and condiments company. I have to jump in and mention that. So uh, I was actually uh, born and raised in Puerto Rico and I went to college in the U.S. And I actually did change my name as well in college. So my name is Ramon and in college I... I would meet people all the time and then it would lead to Ramon, where from? And then, you know, that rabbit hole of a conversation. And one day I just changed it to Ray and then nobody asked anything after I said (laughs) Ray. And I was like, oh my God, this is magic. Like I don't have to explain or answer the same small talk conversations. And then I just reclaimed my name when I moved to Austin about three years ago to start my company. So I had to throw that in there because I've never met someone else that had the same story. And then B, you know, the story of a fly, the reason for that being in the company name, that's a really cool story you have there. Yeah, I love that. I think it, you know, whether it's like a name or just some kind of other mask that we put up, you know, it's something that a lot of us live with growing up and it's beautiful to, you know, kind of, go inwards rather than kind of live for the expectations of others. So for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that story, Jing. And that's so interesting. I actually didn't know that about Ramon myself. (laughs) So you learn something new all the time. (laughs) So talking about, you know, your experience from kind of the tech industry into restaurants, how did you decide to land on CPG as being kind of your way to really integrate, or I guess the step that you're at right now to integrate the culture that you kind of been around your whole life and have really more so reconnected with the last few years? Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it started with that personal quest to reconnect with my roots, which is how I ended up in China. And as I was, you know, learning more about it, I felt like it really should be celebrated more on a, on a global scale. And so, you know, I started actually by writing about it, um, doing some television work, so more around food media. And then with my restaurant and Fly by Jing, it was through that experience, I was able to see people's reactions firsthand to these flavors, right? Watching their eyes bulge when they taste something for the first time that is like astounding to them. And that was like the firsthand market research that I needed. And I think another pivotal moment for me was in 2018. At the time, I was still living in Shanghai and I traveled to California to uh, go attend Expo West. And that's the largest natural foods show in the US. And it's super overwhelming. It's several days and thousands of stalls. And I remember walking the halls and seeing literally thousands of stalls. And at the end of it, I could barely recall any multicultural food brands. 
let alone Asian and let alone Chinese. So that was really kind of an aha moment for me when I saw also just how lacking in diversity the entire ecosystem was, like all the buyers walking the halls as well. And I felt like that wasn't right. And that's clearly not reflective of the way America looks and the way we eat, but it's also a huge missed opportunity. So that summer, I um, launched my Kickstarter for our first product, Citron Chili Crisp, which was a sauce, a chili oil sauce that I was making in my kitchen that was a foundation for a lot of my dishes. And I realized, you know, this is a super high quality product that not only, you know, has never been made before because I was very familiar with the Chinese market and also the Western market at this point. And there was nothing on the market that was such high quality, all natural, no preservatives. And it was also naturally shelf stable. So I decided to launch the Kickstarter with that in July of 2018. And that became the highest funded craft food project on Kickstarter. So that kind of affirmed my thinking that Americans were ready for a new paradigm shift about Chinese food. That's awesome. That's really incredible and really interesting. I mean, congratulations on the Kickstarter as well. So I think something that's really interesting to me that stood out was, you know, the best brands are usually built on some sort of like economic moat in terms of they have something that's really unique. And I think, you know, with you, it's bringing over some of those flavors and you recognize that market gap over there. I guess I have two questions. The first being, why do you think those market gaps between what's happening over here in the US versus China in terms of like those flavors wasn't bridged before? And why, like, how were you able to to bridge them yourself? Yeah. So I think, you know, we can go pretty deep into that topic. There's a lot of reasons why Chinese food just had a lot of kind of false stereotypes and narratives about it, you know, which resulted in a lack of demand in general. In this country in particular, um, there's been centuries of prejudice that stem all the way back to the, uh, probably like before the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1800s. And as a result, Chinese food has traditionally ranked very low on what's known as the hierarchy of taste, which is kind of like society's judgment of a cuisine's value based on the socioeconomic status of its people. So that's why people are very happy to pay hundreds of dollars for French food, but insist that the cheaper that Chinese food is, the more the better or the more authentic. So as a result, you know, manufacturers had no reason to export high quality products when they're repeatedly told that the market wouldn't pay more than like basement bottom prices for them. But I knew that Chinese food was way more than that, right? Because I had firsthand account and I spent years, you know, sourcing the best quality ingredients all across China for my restaurant and for my private dining concept. And I also knew that great flavors were universal. And, you know, that was proven by people's instant reactions to those flavors when I cooked for them. But in between that realization and being able to bring it to, you know, uh, the international market at scale, there's a lot of steps there. And that was challenging, to say the least. Um, There were a lot of challenges to creating something of high quality and and being unwavering in that dedication to quality um, at scale. 
and working through it in China, in a country where even though I'm from there and I speak the language, uh, culturally, there are still differences. And just, it was extremely challenging to, you know, set up a supply chain in China and then also set up a business in the U.S. for the first time, because I'm actually Canadian, so I've never lived in the U.S. until very recently. (laughs) There was a lot of steps in between, but I think that the fact that we small batch craft the sauces in my hometown and we use extremely specific ingredients that literally have never been put together in one product before, that's what sets our product apart and is that moat because nothing else tastes like it because nothing else is made like it. I I have a question on that. So in bringing that quality of a product with that meticulous attention to those ingredients. So I know you mentioned the Kickstarter, so I was just looking at it and I wonder, was it always from day one, um, did you always have the capacity to bring it at the scale or was there a period where the product either had to be sold out for for some period of time, like how did you get it from zero to one to be able to have that level of scale? I know this is more operational side of things, but I do understand how much of a challenge that must have been, especially when, you know, this isn't like a co-packer that already has the assembly line ready to go. So uh, yeah, I know that must have been a really challenging phase. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it started, as I said, in my kitchen. So I was cooking for a couple of years before we ever produce it at scale. And from my kitchen, I was also making the sauces to bottle in the very beginning and, you know, selling it locally in Shanghai and online. And, you know, the Kickstarter enabled us to produce the first big batch at scale and finding a manufacturer was extremely, extremely challenging There literally are thousands of manufacturers in China, all with varying degrees of quality and legitimacy and, you know, having to, I've definitely learned a lot of hard lessons and I've actually written a whole piece about it, about what I learned making hot sauce at scale in China and it's on medium and overcoming that first hurdle was what it was. It was the first hurdle. But uh, since then, you know, we've stocked out many times. And the demand has definitely outstripped the supply, particularly this year during the pandemic. And, you know, we've had to, you know, iterate and adapt. And yeah, I'm very proud of how far we have come today from the early days. So, yeah. Uh, I could imagine. Yeah. So I want to actually circle back to the Kickstarter thing, because I think that's really interesting. It's a unique way to launch a product. And I'm just really curious to hear from you. So Usually when I see Kickstarters that are out there, you know, you have, you raise the money and then the product launch is usually not close to the same time as when you raise the money. So you aren't delivering at the same rate. So that was like the first case of increased demand that I'm sure you had. How did you kind of like manage those, those expectations for that increased demand and those people that maybe were contributing to your campaign and were expecting a product at a later date? And just, you know, making sure and kind of calming those requests at the same time. Yeah, Um, I think we did, you know, 380% or 400% better than we had originally kind of targeted on Kickstarter. So as the campaign was going on, you know, I was adjusting my order quantities and things like that. 
But I think one of the reasons why I chose to go the Kickstarter route was A, that it is a great platform to jump off because of the built-in audience of trendsetters and like early adopters. You know, so that's great for marketing. But also because a lot of the people who are kind of Kickstarter just like part of the community, they understand what this platform is and it's to kickstart a brand and from the ground up. And so they are people who are quite supportive of that effort, understanding that sometimes things don't work out. And sometimes, you know, Kickstarters never get even completed past the first month, right? So if you don't raise all the money, everyone gets their money back. And then even after you raise the amount of money that you need, there is no guarantee for the person that gave you money that they'll get a product back in return. So I think the audience is generally quite understanding and quite supportive as a result and expecting of delays and things going wrong because, you know, I don't know a single founder who has created something that wasn't there before and did not run into a million roadblocks. So the way the platform is built, like you're able to provide updates consistently throughout the process. So for example, we had originally targeted shipping in October or September and it ended up being like more around Christmas time. So just every step of the way, just being very transparent. And it was quite a nice way to like directly communicate to your backers as well. And I think people were very appreciative of the transparency. That's awesome. And just one quick thing on that as well. When did you launch the campaign? And you said you delivered around Christmas time. So like how many months was like that in between? So the campaign finished in July of 2018, and we delivered in December of 2018. Cool. And when did you launch the Kickstarter? Did you launch it in that same month, July? Yeah. To raise the money? 30 days before. So we launched in June. Awesome. Yeah. That's really incredible then that you hit 400% of that. So I know you also had a huge increase in sales as well when COVID hit and people went into kind of lockdown and spent more time at home. I'm really curious. So we talked about the Kickstarter thing as well. What do you think were the contributing factors there for this like increase in demand? Was it all COVID related? Were there other things that work over there that maybe you were doing in the background before COVID kind of hit that also attributed to the increase in demand? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. We had been in market about a year when COVID hit. And in that year, we've seen pretty consistent growth through organic word of mouth people from you know the original few thousand like kickstarter backers to the our early customers and you know it kind of was a snowball effect since we started and the press has been a consistent contributing factor to that as well we've been in pretty much all the major media outlets and you know we have always grown organically, more or less, and had done very few um, paid ads. But towards, I think, the end of last year, we were starting to do a bit more experimenting in that area. And in addition to kind of all the exposure that we've had through influencers and, you know, just people organically sharing on social, that really, I think, contributed when COVID hit. We just really saw that social sharing just skyrocket. And people were at home, people were all like, you know, experiencing this, this really crazy thing all together. And people were sharing what they were cooking and and eating. So that was definitely, 
you know, I think the pre-work that we had done in the year leading up to that contributed to the success. And and then in April, we did also have a very large media mention in the New York Times. And that was was another pivotal moment for us. It's interesting you mentioned that because sometimes, you know, influencer marketing is, is more than just direct attribution. Um, it did pay off for you at a certain point in time when, when COVID hit. But, you know, those efforts also allow to build an audience and a brand. Whereas even ourselves, we've tried PPC with Facebook and Instagram ads. And it's just like the target is just always moving over there. The customer acquisition costs are always increasing. And the dollar that went out, you know, you do acquire that customer, but perhaps not with the same loyalty as you do with investing up front and building that audience through social. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. So one other thing I wanted to ask as well. So I'm always fascinated about e-commerce brands and direct-to-consumer brands because they're very different than the work that Ramon and I do in the sense, you know, we're in the software space. So there is basically an unlimited supply, whereas in e-commerce and direct-to-consumer, you've got supply constraints in terms of selling out of a product and all of that stuff. So you got a huge increase in demand. How do you manage demand like that without losing on potential revenue, right? Because if someone comes to your website and something's sold out, maybe they don't come back as someone that ends up as a buyer. So it's a very delicate balance. I'm just curious to learn a little bit more about that. And how do you kind of manage like being in stock, being out of stock, making sure that you're not missing out on potential loss revenue? Yeah, so we decided to switch to pre-orders when we ran out of inventory back in April. And, you know, we were clear with communicating to customers that they could anticipate their product in about three months time. You know, at the time, because so many companies were going through the exact same challenge, consumers were primed for that wait. And so I think it's really just being communicative, being staying in touch being very transparent, we had a number of issues come up that delayed the process even more, like just crazy things that would happen. And I personally wrote like very transparent emails to all the customers describing them, you know, in full because we just want to be as honest as possible. And people were really appreciative of that. A lot of people wrote back and said they'd never received anything like that from a brand before or didn't expect to or and they were really supportive and I think seeing kind of the human side behind this business and the people that are working so hard to make this happen made them feel closer to the brand and we had very few cancellations we had more than 30,000 people on a pre-order list probably a handful that canceled so I think that was something where we had no other choice because it, it is a pandemic and there's nothing that you can do to rush the process, you know? And so it was really just about leveling with customers. We're all in the same boat and we all are just doing our best. Yeah, for sure. That totally is understandable. I think, you know, consumers do have that sense of empathy and I always preach, and I think the other founders will agree as well that have been on this podcast is just, you know, having that sense of empathy and just being very transparent can be really good for your brand. So one of the things that I also learned about your brand that I think is really interesting and the audience would find really interesting 
is the fact that, you know, you mentioned earlier at the beginning of the episode that you are basically bringing in a lot of those products from China. Most of your supply chain is run through China. And as a result of your demand increase, I read that, you know, you've had to diversify your supply chain a little bit and use some people over here in the U.S. What was that process like? And is that something you're going to continue to do as you scale? Or what are you doing with your supply chain there? Yeah, that was like part of this whole journey in the last year after we stocked out, which was in about March. We sold out of several months of inventory overnight. And at that point, luckily, in China, they had already gotten a handle on the pandemic. And so a lot of factories were starting to open up finally. And so I was able to place another order, but the factory that I normally had worked with, they were severely resource constrained and could not bottle it. So I had to convince them to even just make the sauce in bulk and ship it to me in bulk. And I was going to figure everything out from here. So that meant that overnight I had to set up a whole new supply chain here from co-packers to bottling facilities to everything down to the label printer. Like everything felt like I had to do from scratch again. And that was a lot. Definitely the months of like between April and August were a blur. And there was a lot of um, inefficiencies, you know, and... I think that I actually encountered in working with the co-packers here just as many challenges as I had encountered working with co-packers in China, but at a 3x kind of cost. So, you know, that was definitely meant to be like a not a permanent solution. And fortunately, shortly after that, I was able to get work with another factory in China who I had worked with before to diversify a little bit on the ground. And uh, they were able to kind of grow with me in this period. And so I've been very grateful that this challenging period has allowed us to really like grow in a way that I could not have imagined before. That's awesome. That's really cool. And it's an interesting perspective on how close you are in terms of your supply chain just in China, in terms of being, I guess, conscious also of the customer in that sense, because if your supply costs go up, obviously, you know, maybe some of that gets translated over to the customer. And so I think that's really interesting as well. As we're kind of coming to the end of this podcast, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of give some advice for some of these founders and marketers that are out here. Obviously, you know, multiple times you've had to deal with increased demand. If you had to name like three different things that you would offer in terms of advice to marketers or founders looking to meet demand or even diversify supply chains, what would you give them? So on a foundational level, I would say that to be a founder and create something that doesn't already exist is a tough and long journey. And I think one of my biggest pieces of advice is to really make sure that this is what you need to do. It's like from the soul (laughs) because this journey is relentless and it'll break most people, you know? So it's so important to, first of all, just be clear that this is the thing that only you and you need to do. So that will get you very far. 
that will get you past any hurdle. And there will be many. And the other thing I would say is another kind of more general piece of advice is to do more with less. And that there is a lot of creativity and there's ways to solve problems that can be more creative and more effective when you have resource constraints. And that was probably one of the keys to how far we've come. And we're only still just in the very beginning. And, you know, I think that when you're overcapitalized or when you have a lot of resources at your disposal, sometimes it's just easier to throw money at a problem rather than look at what's the best way to solve it. So I would say to use resource constraints as leverage rather than as a handicap. Yeah. That's great advice. (laughs) (laughs) That's the main two. And then the other, I think, is just in terms of building a brand, just be real, I guess. And consumers are very savvy in being able to sniff out a company that is just in it for a market opportunity rather than doing something that really means something and and has is contributing value to the world or you know i think that type of authenticity in a story um, and not necessarily a founder story but the company's story is very important to to building that relationship a long-term relationship with customers it's interesting how the market works and the universe works that it'll weed out the non-authentic products and companies by giving these challenges and are seen as tests that if you don't have real passion or, or authenticity behind what you're really doing, you're going to give up on the on the first roadblock that comes along the way. And as you said, there's many. So one thing I'll add as well is that I know you mentioned that you had a Medium article and I found it. It's called, for those that want to look into that, we can add it to the show notes as well. It's called What I Learned from Making Hot Sauce at Scale. And there are a lot of tips and advices here from you as well. So I'm sure um, that'll be a useful resource for the listeners as well. Yes, absolutely. That's a great point. I did learn a lot of difficult lessons and they're all in that article. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely have that over there. And just ending on a a couple more questions over here, some rapid fire, I guess, a little bit. Who are some of the people that have kind of been inspirational in your journey? If you would just want to kind of list a few or maybe some brands that you look up to as well. Oh, um, there's been so many, you know, obviously, in the very beginning, it was like, Sriracha, right? It's the first Asian food brand that has gone mainstream. And that's definitely been an inspiration for me wanting to create the first modern day Chinese food brand that is going to be a household name. You know, as I mentioned, I bootstrapped the company up until this point, and have relied a lot on the wisdom of other founders. You know, and I also moved to LA and moved to the US not knowing anybody, and without a network. And so Really, it was like, you know, I depended a lot on this community of founders and just, you know, people who are like giving back and like, what is the term giving forward? Yeah, paying it forward. Yeah, paying it forward. Exactly. And yeah, so, you know, just uh, the founder of like HealthAid, for example, Vanessa Dew, she's become a very good friend of mine. And initially, I just, you know, reached out to her for advice and, you know, just people like that, who are extremely busy, but have been able to provide just invaluable advice to me. And also founders who are at the same stage as me, you know, or just starting out, like we all lean on each other 
for support. And especially some of these companies that are mission driven, like mine and you know, oftentimes uh, investors or VCs like won't see the bigger picture. They'll think that, you know, oh, the focus is too niche or, you know, we don't get why you make these types of decisions rather than breakneck speed growth. And, you know, so oftentimes we can bond over that common, you know, just kind of feeling othered in these situations. And so that's been really, really great. I think it's really just founders and people have gone down this path before. Cool. That's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. And so last two kind of rapid fire questions before we end the podcast over here. First, what's next for Fly by Jing? And the second being, who should we interview next on the DTC pod? Yeah. So, well, on Tuesday, so in just two days, we are launching a brand new refresh of the brand identity. So everything from the website to the jars will have a makeover. And this has been a long time coming and it's a reflection of the evolution of our brand and our story. It is such a personal story and I didn't intend for it to be when I started the company, but it's kind of how it's turned out. And I think that the specificity in our story is actually very relatable to others across the board. And so, you know, this rebrand actually feels very raw and vulnerable for me to put out so much of what feels personal, but I think that it serves kind of the brand a lot better. And so I can't wait to share that with everyone on Tuesday. And moving forward, we are just getting started. We have about nine products right now, and they are kind of pantry essentials flavors, condiments, spices that allow you to add instant flavor to anything that you're already eating. And then from there, you know, we hope to grow into other parts of the food system. So everything from snacks to meals eventually. And, you know, we really want to just become that household name that has longevity. So that's what's next for Fly by Jing. And in terms of who you should talk to next, I don't know if you've talked to Helena from House. We have not. Okay, so you've got to talk to Helena from House. So yeah, Helena and Woody, they run DC alcoholic spirits company called House. It's like low ABV, all natural aperitifs. And yeah, they're some of the, the best in the DTC game. So Cool. Well, we will definitely be reaching out and hopefully have them as a guest over here on the podcast. Jing, it's been phenomenal having you on the podcast over here. You dropped a lot of knowledge on us and some really cool tips and insights that I think are just just great, I guess is what I would say there. Thank you so much for, for joining the podcast over here. And before we do go, if is there any links or things like that that people that are listening should go check out to learn more about you or connect with you? Yeah, so they can reach me on my Instagram at Jing Theory, J-I-N-G Theory. And the Fly by Jing Instagram is at Fly by Jing. And then check out our website. If it's after Tuesday, it'll be a whole new look, um, flybyjing.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again for joining the podcast. And for everyone that's listening out there, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the DTC pod. If you enjoyed it, 
feel free to give us a, a rating, subscribe, and we will see you on the next episode. Who knows? It might be with House. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.